are listening to It Simply Isn't Done, a podcast of Portage Chapel Hill. I'm Reverend Jess Davenport, and I am typically joined by Reverend Barry Petrucci. Barry is on a renewal leave, and we are excited for him and excited to welcome him back mid-October. We are going to have guests join us on the podcast that will reflect on the scripture, on messages, and a little bit about their life and ministry. And we are so happy that you're here. This week wraps up our Gospel According to Banned Books series. We end with Gender Queer, a memoir by Maya Kobabe, and the scripture is from Paul's letter to the Galatians. I anticipate it will be familiar to you. Our guest today is Tori Davenport, a member at Chapel Hill. He serves on the Kaleidoscope Kids Board, which is our preschool, the preschool that's connected to Chapel Hill. He is an attorney in town, and most notably to me, at least, my husband. So stay tuned. Um, You can look in the show notes if you want a little more information about where you can skip to if you've already heard the scripture and the message. Thanks for being here. Let us hear these words from scripture. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise." a word of God that is still speaking. Thanks be to God. Amen. Join me in prayer. Gracious and holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, you already know it is the last week of our The Gospel According to Banned Books series, and if you have paid close attention, you'll notice that something is slightly different on the communion table. We took the band sign off the Bible. Um, You all uh, graciously went with that kind of bit of performance art (laughs) that we had, recognizing um, that almost everywhere the Bible is not banned, one exception being a school district in Utah. I'll talk about that in a minute. (laughs) But um, we put it up there because a lot of the content that is contained within our scripture is the same type of objectionable content um, that gets cited for book challenges. Right? There is incredible violence contained within our scripture. There is sexually explicit material contained within our scripture because our scripture tells the story of people and humanity. Right? There are also wonderful, positive, incredible things, but it tells the whole of it. And so we understand ourselves to be people who can discern God's will, right? who can discern where God is calling us, nudging us through scripture as a primary means. Right? We understand where God's voice might be. And so while in some countries the Bible might be banned, and like I mentioned, 
Um, it was kind of like a counter-protest in Utah. The Bible actually did get banned in a school district for those same reasons, because they had to use the same criteria. <laughs> they had to use the same criteria for the rest of these books, and then people were like, well, guess what, friends? Friends who say that you're Christian, your same book that you read scripture from, that you teach your children, has that same content. So what's the difference? And I think that gives us a good place to start, to consider ourselves as critical thinking people. Because I think today, this might be for some of us, the hardest conversation we have out of all five. The book is a memoir, Gender Queer. We heard a little bit from Maya Kobabe earlier. It's a graphic novel that details your experience with gender dysphoria, gender euphoria, asexuality, just being a teenager and figuring out how to date, all within the space of navigating a gender that didn't feel like it matched the norms. This book is most often banned for sexually explicit imagery, although compared to some of the other books we've talked about, frankly, it's pretty tame. Um, and, and as was mentioned, this is one of, if not the most challenged book in America. And I think that bears a lot of internal investigation on our part, some soul searching as to why that is. I've often wondered, why are Americans so obsessed with other people's gender? It seems to be a topic. Everywhere you look, there is conversation about it as if there are not people in our lives and in the room who are experiencing it. Right? This is not just a topic. This is an issue regarding people we know and love. And I don't know why we're so obsessed with other people's gender, but just as this is the most challenged book, I think this will be our most challenging conversation. There have been many times where this congregation has held to and uplifted our value of inclusion, and um, sometimes that comes with a lot of questions and a lot of confusion. This is an area where we're learning more and more and more every day. And so it makes sense to first take some time to update ourselves on the latest kind of scholarship. And before we begin, I wanna let you know that um, much of the, the kind of teaching content I wanna share with you all comes from scholar Austin Hartke. I've mentioned him before. He's a biblical scholar, author of Transforming, a trans man himself. He comes out of the ELCA tradition, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. But a lot of kind of the, the learned part, the teaching part, I learned from him, and I'd love to point you back to his work. And I think it's important that um, you have clergy that are trained such that we can bring parts of the academy right, to the pews. We don't have actual pews, but you all get it. What's the point of having trained clergy if we don't have these conversations because you all have different jobs and you, have, <laughs> you do not have the time to do this kind of education. So we get to do some of that together. All of that said, I mentioned we live in this incredible kind of discovery period about gender and humanity. And to get to that, I often hear a lot of times folks saying, well, I don't, why, why is this happening all of a sudden? All of a sudden, just everyone is gender nonconforming and people are trans all the time. It didn't used to be this way. Well, um, there's not. There are not more folks who are experiencing um, some sort of gender nonconforming behavior. It is just simply marginally safer to be out. It's marginally safer to be who they really are, even though it's not entirely safe. And the way we can kind of think about this and the way Austin described it, where it really clicked with me, 
So consider this, 500 years ago, you went outside, sure there were some simple telescopes if you were like a scientist, but you go outside and you look up at the night sky, what do you see? Stars. Stars. The moon. You might see some planets, you might not know they're planets, you might think they're stars, right? You could really only see with the naked eye. Friends, I don't know if you have been following the pictures from the James Webb Telescope. They are incredible, right? We can, there might be different universes. We can see black holes, we can see pictures of things. There might be life out there. We are seeing more and more, we are learning more and more. Those things were always there, always there. We just now have the technology, the wherewithal, the capacity as people to learn about them. And I would commend to you the same holds true regarding gender. We're at a place where we have capacity where we just know more. Humanity as a whole isn't necessarily changing, we just have language. We have better language and we have better self-discovery about these issues. And when we have better language, when we have more acceptance, it gives people more permission to be honest about their own experiences and what they're feeling. But in order to have conversations about gender, I wanna do a little teaching, just so we're all on the same page. Because, um, you know, I'm not, even, even though the youth occasionally call me ancient, I'm not that old. And what I learned in school regarding sex and gender is wildly different than, than what we're understanding today, which lets me know there are folks that came before me that are also in that position that are kind of like, hey, I want to be there, but I'm confused. <laughs> I want to be there, but I have some learning. So we're going to take some time to do that together. We're going to first uh, start talking about um, gender. And oh yeah, that's, sorry, <laughs> that was my own slide. I made it. I don't know why I was confused. <laughs> So gender, when we talk about gender, we understand there are three components. They're different, but they're interrelated. So gender does have to do with your body. It has to do with your organs and your chromosomes and your brain and the values that our culture and society place on those things, right? There are values that are kind of within that physical sphere. It also has to do with your identity, your experience of gender, how you internally identify, um, your self-perception of being female or male, both or neither. Scholars would say even if a person is not introduced to any other person in humanity, they would still somehow come together with a sense of gender. There's something innate with gender self-discovery, even though our expression of gender, number three, is highly related to our culture. So your expression is how you show your gender to yourself and others through presentation, right? Through clothing, voice, posture, hair, your mannerisms, all of those have gendered values in society. And so sometimes we'll talk about gender as like a presentation or performance. And sometimes folks will feel like, well, that feel, is that fake? Is that inauthentic? No, no, it is just our expression of what that might be. And I think sometimes too, um, folks think that that's really a fixed or discrete experience, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But all of us, all of us have a gender presentation, every one of us. We all make choices about how we look out in the world, and sometimes it varies day to day. 
There are days where I'm like, I do not want to look girly. I will wear male basketball shorts and a hoodie and put my hair back and like hope I don't look feminine in any capacity. My gender is not really changing. I still identify a particular way, but my expression thereof looks different. I think a lot of us can relate to that experience, regardless of whether you feel cisgender, trans, or whatever. We all understand that how we dress and present ourselves communicates a little bit about who we are out in the world, okay? Here are three things that gender is not. Gender is not your sexual orientation. Gender is about you and your experience. Your sexual orientation are the gender, genders you're attracted to, emotionally, physically, Sometimes those get confused, and frankly, the word sexual orientation probably doesn't best encapsulate this. We're a little limited with our language. So gender is also not your biological sex. Um, I was taught there are two biological sexes, right? Folks that have male sex organs, female sex organs. Well, we're learning now that about 1.7% of the population is actually intersex. And a lot of us might not even know, it might not really affect our life. And you might be saying, well, that's a really small percentage of the population. No, it's not. That's not a small or an insignificant part of the population. That is a little bit higher than folks who naturally have red hair. <laughs> we, lo we love a ginger shout out here. <laughs> right, but that's a significant part of the population. And it's important for us to at least have that knowledge because we like to think these things are, are, you know, like we learned about this. Well, it's changing, just like the stars, just like the telescope. So then gender is not fixed or discrete. Gender is based on cultural and societal norms, what we will tolerate, accept, celebrate. Friends, there are many cultures that have multiple genders. Many of us are so influenced by kind of our Western culture sphere, we don't even learn or know about them. But in ancient times to today, many cultures, many genders. Um, if any of you were here when Rabbi Simone preached, Rabbi Simone preached about all the genders within ancient Hebrew traditions. Um, I've, I've heard First Nations people talk about the multiple genders they have within their understanding of Native American religion. There are a lot of spaces where there are multiple genders, it's really based a lot on what we accept, what we tolerate, what we'll have conversations about, and I think that's important for us to know as well. So when folks are presented with this, the well, it's not there, imagine it. <laughs> you don't need to go back, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Eric. When folks are presented with this kind of information, right, the, the latest information, um, some folks will be like, okay, that's fine. In our faith tradition, if folks refuse it, they say, I don't get my information from science textbooks. I get it from scripture. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> right, and people, uh, who, people who would interpret it that way seem to interpret scripture in possibly the least generous and most legalistic way. And I'm not really sure they've done their due diligence. I don't think it's really great biblical scholarship to suggest that God somehow ordained only two genders. And we'll get into a few reasons why. There is a myriad of reasons why. Um, but thankfully for you, we're Methodist and we only have an hour-long service. <laughs> <laughs> so we see this first in Genesis. Something folks will often cite was, well, God said male and female, God created them. That settles it for me. Okay, it also says God created day and night. God created land and water. 
How many of us have experienced dawn? <laughs> or dusk? How many of us have been to a swamp or an estuary or a beach that is not really either land right, or water? If we interpret scripture in the most legalistic way possible, we really take the gorgeous poetry out of the intention. If we can hold that God is alpha and omega and everything in between, then perhaps we can understand the scripture was not meant to make mandates of fixed binaries, but to suggest that God created the whole of humanity, all of who we are, male and female and everything else, humanity as a whole, right? It's a poem. <laughs> It's a poem, and we learn more about who we are and who God is from that poem if we try not to interpret it as a science textbook. So we also see a lot of gender non-conforming folks in scripture. Uh, most recently, this last summer, um, we talked about Joseph. Right? Joseph is gender non-conforming. I'll get into a little bit about why, but I wanna be thoughtful in mentioning it is, it is anachronistic to apply the term trans, right, to someone back in scripture, not because trans people didn't exist necessarily, but because that concept didn't exist, right? It's kind of like when people say, well, Joan of Arc was a feminist. Well, sure, maybe, but like the concept of feminism did not exist. So we don't wanna be anachronistic in our application of this in order to be as true to the, the scripture as we can. So, what scholars would tell us to do is to look at the experience. Look at the experience of gender non-conforming folks, folks that are marginalized, and compare it to the experience of folks today. And that will take us to Joseph. If you know one thing about Joseph, what do you know about Joseph? He had a coat of many, uh, coat of many colors. I like that it's the Dolly Parton version where <laughs> he had a technicolor dream coat. Scholars do not know what that word is in Hebrew. They do not know. They're unsure. The only other place that it, that word is prominently used is describing a dress that Tamar was wearing. So if you use context clues, scholars can reasonably make an argument, uh-huh, interesting. Perhaps Joseph's coat of many colors was really a dress, and he was a little boy, like many little boys that play dress up in a dress. So there's that interesting experience that many folks who are gender nonconforming have. Additionally, his brothers, the keepers of masculinity, tried to beat him up for whatever reason. They did not think, you know, whether it's because their dad loved him or whether it's because he wore dresses, they tried to beat him up. They even tried to kill him. And frankly and horrifyingly, many gender nonconforming folks experience extreme violence. Right there is a shared experience. Um, I think the interesting one, and one I love when uh, my queer friends point this out, they're like, remember, remember when Potiphar's wife like, threw herself at Joseph and he was like, mm-mm, I'm good. <laughs> Even in captivity, he did not, he just for whatever reason did not want to have any sort of romantic or sexual experience with a woman. And so there's another kind of shared experience. So again, we can't extrapolate precisely Joseph's gender identity, but it is obvious he was gender nonconforming. Right? That is obvious. We can look at the experiences and understand that. There are other folks that are gender non-conforming within Scripture, right? just because, they're, because Scripture contains the whole of humanity. All sorts of people show up in Scripture. And when we try to erase that or act like that's not present, we're not doing ourselves any sort of service, both to the text and to ourselves today. 
You know, the third thing I want to highlight, not because I think this is an issue within our community, but it was a few years ago, and I've, I've noticed in particular, in particular in, in dominant Christian culture, there is a strong movement against using folks' pronouns and names, chosen names. And people will say no, and somehow associate that or attribute that to their faith or Christianity. And I find that very confusing for a whole host of reasons, um, but the one related to scripture is that people are renamed all the time. They're constantly being renamed in scripture from the very beginning, right? Abram and Sarai, they were renamed. Abraham and Sarah. We have this going over and over. Jacob, Israel. Joshua was actually Hosea to begin with and then was renamed. We have Saul to Paul. Um, we have a really interesting example. This, is, this will really test anyone if you ever were like in Bible Quiz Bowl. Does anyone remember what Naomi wanted to call herself? Mara. Oh, excellent. I don't have points to award, but way to go. <laughs> Naomi wanted to rename herself Mara. Mara means bitter, right? And Naomi had just experienced uh, all of these trials and tribulations and was trying to take on this identity of bitterness after losing her family. And ultimately, that name did not stick, partially because her identity changed, right? Her identity changed, and she had a family. She had people that cared for her. She had grandchildren. She was no longer bitter. So that identity that she tried on for a little bit, it didn't ultimately fit, and I think that story can help us give grace to folks who are trying to figure out this identity, who might try a few different pronouns or a few different names, right? This is not a new phenomenon. We even have it in scripture, and it can give, give us at least an example or a reference point of what it means to try on an identity and live into it. So finally, I think this one is probably my favorite and the most fascinating we all know that Jesus, we, most of us know that Jesus changed Simon's name to Peter, right? So we know that, Peter, rock of the church. At that same time is the first time in scripture where a human calls Jesus the Messiah. So Jesus was renamed. God was also given a new name. All of this is to just say, right, for folks that are so adamant that gender is binary and it's from God, I'm not really sure scripture supports that. I don't think it does. I don't really find that within the text. And of course we can find things that might support that, just as I've pointed out things that might, might support the other end. Then we can get to the point, well, why is this important? And how do we find kind of an ethic and what do we tease and pull from this? If there are scriptures that we feel like may or may not conflict. What do we do with that information? And that gets me to our, what's the point, right? What's the point? The point is there is real harm done to trans and gender nonconforming folks. Real harm being done. And whenever Christians exhibit behaviors and the fruit of that behavior is harm being done to people, we have questions to ask ourselves. We are not in the right. No matter whatever else is going on, we are, we are not doing what God would have us do. Trans folks are four times more likely to be murdered than cisgender people. That is abhorrent, right? That is shameful. If nothing else, we need to work for a society right, where people don't have to fear the threat of murder generally, let alone because of how they identify. 
Our kids who are trans experience staggering rates of suicide ideation and suicide attempts. That is more true in the Bible Belt and the place that is supposed to be the most Christian. Friends, and we see attempts all over the country to demonize trans people through the law, through legislature, and they'll often do so explicitly naming Christian values. Where a lot of this boils down to for us is I hear folks saying, I just don't get it. I just don't understand. You don't need to understand someone else's gender. You don't. It's really none of your business. You don't need to understand it. When I hear the most, I just don't understand, okay, I hear that. You can seek to understand. Jesus did not call us to understand people. That is nowhere in scripture. Jesus called us to love people, to love people, love people into being. And that's hard. This is hard because for many of us sitting here, this has changed so drastically in our lifetime. We're having a hard time catching up and that's okay. It's okay that it's uncomfortable. It's okay that it's hard. I saw a post online from a mom that said, I would rather have my kid change their pronouns a hundred times than write their obituary. And amen. Right? That is erring on the side of love. Knowing, again, this can be hard. The language part can be hard. Cementing someone's chosen name or their new pronouns into our heads, it's hard. Our brains kind of categorize people, and when they don't fit in those categories anymore, we struggle. We struggle. That's okay. It takes time and effort. If you're like me, I've had to practice. I've had to literally look at pictures of people I love and practice. It has helped tremendously. Showing someone the dignity of seeing them and calling them by the name they want to be called, the pronouns they want, it is important. It is so important. It is worth our struggle. It is worth the hard times we're going through figuring it out. And I know some of us have young people in our lives, and we struggle keeping up with the rapid changes of self-identification. I hear you. Right? If you have been in a middle school, whew, Right? There's a lot going on. If you've been in high school, young adults have always been developmentally in a place where they're trying on self-identification labels and identity. That looks a little different now than it did, but that's the same developmental stage they're in. We can hang tough and be patient there. If, if, if any of you recall, man, middle school, I gave myself nicknames. <laughs> I decided I wanted to spell my name differently, right? And so we all can appreciate trying to figure out what our identity is. We just live in a new world where there are more identities that people feel safe experimenting with and feeling okay with, right? And that's, that is our right. That is okay because I think we can learn a lot from our young people who find our societal rules of gender rigid and limiting, right? So you might see someone who you knew as a boy who has nail polish on. That doesn't mean anything about their gender. It's just nail polish, right? We don't have to have a big thing about it. Right? That's, the kids I experience are so much freer in being able to name like, hey, I don't really want to be hemmed in that way. And that gives us as permission as adults to do the same thing because I have heard from so many men, I have had to work to deconstruct the gendered norms I was taught that I'm only allowed to be angry. That's the only feeling I'm allowed to have. And I know a lot of you have done that work to say, no, like, I'm allowed to be sad and tender and I know women 
who say the same thing, who say, hey, I've been told my whole life I'm only worth something if I'm partnered and if I have children. And I don't think that's true. And I don't want to live into that. Right? Our societal norms of gender really hem us in in a lot of ways that I don't think allow us to be the kingdom of God. And we can learn a lot from the kids who are doing this work. And frankly, it's our job to make a world where they can do that work and thrive and they don't have to be our teachers. So we have a little bit of responsibility here within that. Another thing I want to say along with that is that I don't want to dismiss any of the grief that can accompany parents, grandparents realizing the future you thought you had for your kiddo or your loved one is no longer. There is grief in that. There is grief in that. That's real, and that can be grieved. That does not mean you do not love or you do not accept your child. It just means you had an idea about who they were going to be because we all dream for our kids. Right? And that dream might not exist any longer. And Barry and I would love to help you process that. Process that grief in a space that's safe, where you can kind of name that and go through that experience. Because that grief is real too, and that does not make you a bad person or a monster in any way to be thinking that through and to be processing that grief while you learn how to love whoever is in your life. And that holds true for any of us who have a friend, who have a significant other, right? That's, that's important grief work that needs to be done along part of that. At the end of the day, in spaces like ours, in spaces that claim we're theologically progressive, remember that doesn't really have anything to do with the partisan political meeting, right? We understand we are always called to love people more than we love our ideology. We are always called to love people more than ideology. I want to put up Paul's words again for us. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. I think Paul is saying that our human-made constructs shouldn't prevent us from being parts of Christ's body. Try as we might to make divisions between us that are frankly arbitrary. Right? They're not relevant to God's love for us, to God's kingdom on earth, what God would have us do within that kingdom. And in saying that, we can recognize that our differences matter. Our differences and diversity matters. Right? We can't all be the body of Christ if everyone is an elbow. That'd be kind of creepy. <laughs> Paul is calling us to not use our differences as a way to rank ourselves in hierarchy and falsely made human systems of power and oppression. Many moons ago, I heard someone describe this as, as Christians being called to oneness and not sameness. Christians being called to oneness and not sameness. I think that really gets to a lot of the heart of this whole series. We don't need to be threatened with ideas as people of faith. We can trust ourselves to discern individually and together what might be right for us, what might be of God in this time, in this context. We are capable of doing that work. We can trust that we can do that together. Folks have been doing it for thousands of years. We don't need to be threatened by these ideas. Frankly, when it comes to threats facing us, 
Ideas found in the children's library don't even make the top 10 for me, right? There are real things threatening us. And books that kids are reading, that's not up there for me. In addition to our topic each week, our book each week, I tried, hopefully with some success, to kind of scaffold in a secondary idea um, that we can apply more broadly in our life. So our first book, Tango Makes Three, we talked about how science and faith try to answer different questions, and that anytime there's some sort of binary with only two options, we should probably ask some questions, because <laughs> those never seem to do us well, that kind of very black and white thinking. We talked about beloved, and we talked about race, and the secondary message was that discomfort is not always a threat to our safety. In fact, a lot of times we have to push through our discomfort in order to grow. When we talked about economics, we talked about the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy and how a lot of the churches and dominant Christian culture, um, they think that having the right belief is the most important thing. The right doctrine, the right belief, and in order to be a part of the community, you must have that belief. And in theologically progressive spaces, we focus more on orthopraxy the right practice, right? What does your faith look like? Understanding that our theology might change and grow with us over time. Last week, we talked about sex, and the secondary message was that God does not shame us for being humans, and we need to live into and learn more and have conversations about our humanity in order to thrive. And today, we're called to oneness and not sameness. My deep hope is that these lessons or ideals can follow us beyond these topics and actually permeate into our everyday lives. Because in addition to books being challenged, friends, human dignity is being challenged all around us. And scripture is clear about that. The entirety of scripture is clear about that. That's not just one passage on a bumper sticker. That is throughout the breadth of scripture. This week, I, I want to invite you to think about the message you received about gender through your faith? Like what message did you get from a faith context about what gender is? You might need a system update, right? You might need, you might need to, hey, examine that and think that's not really exactly where I'm at. And additionally, if you're uh, going for extra credit, you might want to consider which one of these five topics you feel most reactive to. What topic might you feel, oh, the most kind of riled up about? And consider why that is. In closing, I want to I wanna say that I'm really grateful to be in a place where we can have these kinds of conversations. Um, this is not a community where I expect the con like all of us to share the same belief. I know a lot of us are not in the same place about this. That's okay. I want to be able to be in a faith community where we can have conversations and where we, how we practice our faith, what our love looks like in public is the thing that matters, and we can learn with and from each other in doing so. That's, I think that's really important, and I think that's a lot of not only what our faith tradition currently is lacking, but our whole society. So finding spaces to have this kind of thought conversation is important. If you have thoughts about this, I would love for you to reach out to me um, or you can come next week at 10. We have chapel chat. So every week we meet in the chapel and we talk about what we talked about the week before. So if you have a lot of thoughts, you're welcome to do so there. But more than anything, um, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful. 
grateful for your time and attention. And I know a lot of us have been thinking about this and struggling with these topics together. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. You are a true friend of the pod. Longtime listener. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And I'm thankful uh, you, you made some time uh, to come over and do this. So well, thank you for having me. Yes, of course. Uh, so you've listened. You know this. The way we start off is with takeaways, what we took from the message. Um, here's what I hoped folks would take, and it's kind of a, it's hard to distill because I was doing some teaching and then kind of had um, uh, more of a lesson. So I hoped that folks uh, learned something new about how we understand gender, um, or if they didn't learn something new, perhaps just heard new language around what that might look like, even if it just confirms or affirms what they already knew and understood. So that was kind of one part of what I hoped folks took away. Uh, The second part was that um, the Bible is not quote unquote clear (laughs) regarding gender issues, despite what dominant Christianity might have us believe. So there are there's plenty of scriptural evidence that uh, makes a multitude of space for inclusion uh, regarding gender topics, and as Christians, um, we really shouldn't be so obsessed with folks' gender. Like just figuring out how to how to love them and affirm who they are and who they tell us they are. Um, that's kind of really where I wanted to go um, in, in terms of affirmation of multiple different gender identities. Yeah, so I think you accomplished all of those goals. <laughs> you, I mean, you kind of are my biggest fan. So it's maybe not fair um, to have my biggest fan on the podcast. <laughs> hey, uh, it's a little too late for that. I'm already here. So I haven't really heard it as clear cut as, as you have, um, as you sort of said in, in the, the message that it's really none of my business. Like it is not any of my business what gender identity um, anybody else expresses. My business is, you know, my own gender identity and expression. I think that it is helpful just considering that because, you know, really we're seeing, um, I think you used the word that it's shameful, um, the just difference in life um, expectations and quality of life that our trans siblings experience. And that is heartbreaking. It is uh, it is just heartbreaking. It's hard to really describe another, or to, to pick another word. So I, I think hearing and considering how, you know, what is my own? I know we talk about that a lot. Um, yeah. You know, what is mine to do? And understanding fully each individual person in my life, their f- expression of gender identity. That's not mine. That's not <laughs> mine to do. I won't understand. I, frankly, I could not understand. I am unpacking my own you know, a lifetime of societal pressure to express identity or to express gender in a certain way. And that's hard enough. So to try to understand, you know, even if it was my business, anybody else's gender identity and expression is just, it's just not mine. It's not mine to do. Um, 
Yeah, and when we say this, it's not as if someone telling or explaining or learning about it is is kind of what I'm getting at so much as when people say, uh, dismissively say, well, I just don't understand it, as if that's a way to not engage or to not affirm people. You know, so that that's kind of the heart of this. It's um, realizing that needing to know the intricacies of someone's you know, expression is not necessary to love them. Right. Yeah, or to see them in their full humanity or to use their correct pronouns. Um, you know, I think it's a really poignant part, and a lot of us are doing this work, that we're figuring out how to express our own gender is hard enough. It's hard enough, um, let alone trying to do that with other folks. Um, did you did you learn anything about gender? Like, you and I talk about this a lot um, in our home life. So I'm, just, I'm curious because I didn't, you know, sometimes I run my sermons by you ahead of time. I haven't lately just because, like, our lives are shenanigans. Like we're busy a lot. But I'm curious if you um, if you learned anything or if you're like, no, Jess, I could have taught this. Oh, no, absolutely not. I could not have taught this. I, <laughs> yes, I absolutely um, learned things. I uh, Particularly, I think just the... Um, the categorization of, um, you know, what is the external um, sort of parameters or limits or pressures on gender expression uh, versus the internal. Um, I had never really considered that I have a gender expression or a gender identity that in a vacuum with no other people around me, I would still express. And I think it made me think about about that and and consider, okay, so, you know, the impossible task of ignoring 30, how old am I, 34 years of of external pressure on what it is to be a man, uh, an American straight man, what would my gender expression be, what would my gender identity be? I have always felt like a cis man. I have not always felt all of the, f- the things that people uh, sort of um, and society puts on you. Uh, for example, I don't like being angry. Um, you do not. But being angry is sort of a, an expectation almost that the, if I am frustrated or sad or disappointed or any, you know, quote unquote negative emotion, I'm expected to be angry and to be loud about my anger and you know I think back to times in my life where one story sort of sticks out that I was watching a basketball game at a group of friends you know with a group of friends including you and you know I just was yelling about this game and angry and I think back about that and of course we had a conversation afterwards like okay buddy get it together Uh, (laughs) which was appropriate and I'm grateful for it because I think about this all the time and I wasn't actually mad. I didn't, I don't care. Like, I don't actually care. Yeah. You know, and so that, that sort of, uh, that expectation that anger is the most accessible is, is something that I think has been really harmful in my own life. And I know in many, many of my friends' lives who identify as men that, you know, that anger is the most accessible and it's the expected and, you know, even deemed appropriate in settings you know, because you're passionate or you're intense or all these other words that we sort of, um, you know, align with anger. So I think it's uh, helpful to sort of unpack all of that. And I've learned a lot about myself in understanding emotion in a different way and that, 
the whole range of emotions um, that are human. Especially because in our in our dynamic, in our relationship, um, I'm the person. I'm the person who experiences anger first. Anger is my primary emotion. That's what I experience first before I know what I'm feeling. And you are the crier, right? Yeah. And so like that, uh, the way you process emotions is through crying. Yes. And like, that's not a thing that men are supposed to be allowed to do, but like it, you know, and, and the same, on the same token, like I, I have been called like masculine at times in my life because of the way I express my emotions. And I've worked, you know, kind of through thinking like, what does this anger do for me? Blah, 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 that stuff on my end. And I know you've also worked in just being okay with the fact that like you're programmed to just cry and get your emotions out that way. And to have you be someone who's kind of stereotypically masculine in a lot of ways um, and how you present and your physicality, right. And, and how you identify, but then to also be like, yeah, no, I'm kind of the softy that will cry at the Subaru commercials. You know, like I'm the person who will, <laughs> who that's the first thing I feel whenever I feel tons of joy or tons of sadness, it's crying, I think has been uh, really helpful. Like, and I'm happy that our kids who at this moment identify as, as boys get to see that. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a challenging process for me to be able to understand that I just I express my emotions the whole range of emotions basically the whole range of emotions through tears um, yeah. and that that is a go-to for me to process it's almost a necessary component in a lot of ways and that was something that was it was hard for me to accept in myself I think really from just the external, again, back to the external pressures that, you know, that to be emo- quote unquote emotional is to express your tears is, is weakness and is not, uh, not masculine, whatever that means. And so it was, I think that is a, you know, an area of my life that uh, that's been a challenge for me. Well, I'm grateful to have seen and knowing you, knowing you for a while, I'm grateful to have seen you kind of accept that because working through um, men learning how to work through emotions without using the tools of anger, which is really about the tool of violence, um, is incredibly important and hard. It's hard to do because there are not a ton of other models out there. Yeah. And it's very easy for me to be, to get to, or to express anger. Yeah. Yeah. there are a lot more models and patterns for how to how to express anger than there are to just sit and let your body process feelings instead of intellectualizing them into yelling. Yes, yes, and the, <laughs> the shift from uh, being uh, an, to intellectualizing my emotions as you as you describe them to thinking about what a feeling would be mm-hmm. rather than feeling feeling my feelings, feeling my emotions in my body and allowing, allowing that to tell me the information rather than thinking logically or, you know, trying to intellectually understand what I would gain from an emotion is, <laughs> is something that uh, is, is funny to, to name it or to talk about. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. But it it's absolutely yes. was how I would yeah. emote. <laughs> I'm curious, in the second half of the message, really talking through why this is pertinent as people of faith, if uh, what, if anything, resonated? So back to the 
you know, it being none of my business, um, the, to fully understand a person before I can care for them and love them and, you know, at the very least do no harm in their life. Um, I think hearing or reading these stories in the Bible in the context that they were written and to understand, okay, this is at a base level, this is a collection of stories about how people exist together. And so, you know, we hear, we heard many examples, uh, uh, you know, a Technicolor Dreamcoat, individuals who did not necessarily express the stereotypical gender. Yeah, I didn't even get into the eunuchs, y'all. I didn't even go to the eunuchs. That could be a whole nother thing in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, I I just think that it makes perfect sense that in a book or in a collection of, you know, 66 books, that there would be, of course, there are stories about individuals who have, you know, experienced the full spectrum of identity, of gender identity beyond a binary. And so it was really helpful to consider while we don't see the word trans in in the bible of course because that's a that's language that is newer for us the experiences have always been there throughout time and so of course the stories are there it's helpful to to contextualize and to understand them and then at the end of the day we are not called to understand every person we are called to do our best to call people by the pronouns they choose to to call them by the name that they that they choose and i i thought your your comment about uh, an individual saying a mother of a trans child saying i'd rather learn a hundred new pronouns every single day than have to write an obituary and that really that really stuck with me i mean that is because that's what that's what we're dealing with the alternative to to not caring for our our kids, our children, is that they're going to experience violence at higher rates and they're going to experience suicide at, at higher rates. And, and this is, it is a shame. Like that is, that is shameful as a society and that is a failure on all of our parts. To hear the, you know, quotes or the, the stories from the Bible uh, expressing how people exist together with the variety of gender expression and identity, I think was really helpful. I had never really considered that. So I, you're someone who often will do will do the homework of the messages, and this is not just when I preach, but generally. So I'm curious what uh, messages you learned about gender um, from growing up in the church. For those who don't know, you're a PK, which means a pastor's kid. Uh, interestingly, you never went to your, your dad's church because he was a campus minister and a Wesley Foundation director. So the teaching you received, um, you received some in your home, right? But your dad was your dad, not your pastor. You had other pastors. Um, so I want to clarify that because I know some of the messages you received and your dad would not co-sign them at all. Um, but I'm curious then if you would share a little bit about that because I think it will resonate with a lot of folks. Um, and I know it has with me as well. Sure. There are, are a lot of harmful messages that I received yeah. uh, growing up. I don't think necessarily intentionally. I think people, you know, the leaders in various churches where I grew up, I tended to move around a lot. So um, again, back to being a, a pastor's kid. Something that has stuck out, especially during, you know, some of my formative years, my understanding of gender and 
sexuality was pretty stagnant. It was pretty pretty set in stone um, that there was one option. Um, I was a, I mean, at that point, I, I was still a child. I was a boy, and I was expected to become a man, to marry a woman, to not consider or think about sex before I became married, and to be uh, a stereotypical cis man made money who uh, was the head of the household the spiritual leader Um, so it's unfortunate that you have a master's degree uh, (laughs) but uh, apparently I'm supposed to be the spiritual head so uh, thank god we've dealt with that (laughs) Uh, that was an easy one for you yeah Yeah. you were like please please (laughs) Please don't make me this (laughs) but yeah I think something that is has become increasingly more clear as I get older is just there's so much unlearning and unpacking that Mm. that I need to do and that I think particularly men of faith and progressive spaces that we need to do is that uh, we're taught one thing and that one thing that we're taught is harmful it's harmful and it's harmful to me it's harmful to society it's harmful to the people in my life and and it's without dealing with it and without unpacking, without um, critically analyzing and assessing who I am as a person and um, who I want to be, not just uh, falling into what's easy, the, um, you know, the expectations and the societal pressures, theological pressures that I, I felt as a, as a kid growing up in the church. If I don't do that, then I perpetuate the harm and like, that's on me. You know, what I was taught, that's not on me, but unpacking it and dealing with it and and ending stopping passing on those lessons I think that's that is on me and that's um, essential for a, a life a life of I don't know positivity or a, living a life that that I want to live faith perhaps even faith yes <laughs> fair enough I'm grateful and I'm thankful. Um, I've, I've been able to be alongside you when you have done a lot of this work. I remember before we were even married, you had you had a group called Man Talk and it was at the campus ministry we were at and anyone who identified as male um, could come. And, you know, you talked about MLK's like measure of a man and you would go through and talk about, you know, we didn't even really have the word toxic masculinity then, but you you identified like, hey, there's I know there's a problem with masculinity and particularly in spaces that are called to be inclusive, but we don't have a lot of patterns for that in the world or in the church. So how can we do some reclaiming of that? And, um, you know, ever since then, I've known you to be someone who cares a lot about um, thinking about this and doing that unpacking and that unlearning. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm grateful to witness it and to be alongside of it and to sometimes nudge you into it. As the spiritual head of our household. That's right. (laughs) Another reason I thought it'd be helpful to have you here is because your work is as a public defender. And I have found it is incredibly misunderstood. People don't really know exactly what you do. And they certainly don't know why you do it. And I think as people of faith, we also kind of struggle um, because we understand God to be some sort of arbiter of justice. And then we have this justice system and we're not always sure how they relate to one another. And we see those go in kind of uh, diametrically different directions at times. 
So I was curious if you, uh, what, what do you wish people knew about being a public defender in your job? Yeah, I think one of the questions that I get often is how could you do this? How can you, how can you defend people uh, that usually I hear that you know are guilty? And so I guess the first thing I would want people to know is that what I love most about my job and the reason I do it is that I have an opportunity to help people uh, in some of the toughest times of their life. Sometimes it's a person in the throes of addiction or a mental health crisis or just they had a really bad day or a really bad week or uh, an experience that uh, you know was triggered from a lifetime of trauma. And so... What I, what I love most about my job and, and what I want people to know is that I find many clients uh, that have been uh, sort of ignored or, or treated by a system that is unfair, that is racist, that is problematic in many ways. And I love the opportunity to come in and to give somebody an opportunity to be heard. Uh, second, I, I want people to know that you're not guilty unless a jury finds you to be guilty <laughs> or unless you enter a plea. Yeah. So we have this sort of counterintuitive uh, part of the this justice system uh, that I'll put in loose quotes. You know, we, we know that people are presumed innocent, but it is very counterintuitive yeah. because, you know, for the most part, People believe that if you have been charged with a crime, you are guilty. And that is just frankly not true. That has not been my experience in the working in public defense. And I would say that that is just not something that many people consider. What I love about my job is that I get to come in and say, okay, let's see what 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 this is all about. Let's see if this police report is, actu- is, is accurate. Let's see what, what's going on here. And I think that what I love about the intersection between my faith and my job is that at the end of the day, in the courts, you know, that is not, that is not of God. That is of, of people. People have decided this. But what I like to bring is, is an opportunity to just provide a voice for clients, some dignity, treat people with respect, and to recognize that... Um, the solutions for uh, the circumstances that bring my clients into contact with me are complicated. They're much more complicated than we we can you know deal with in a in a trial. Much more complicated than we can deal with in a a report for sentencing. And at the end of the day, I want to be part of opportunities to uh, to address these complicated problems with complicated answers. That is something that I love, and I believe that. In my life, that's what I'm called to do. And I am so grateful you were willing to come here and take a little time out of your day to talk to us about that, as well as the message. Thanks for being here, Tori, and we will catch you all next time.